living beyond our fears. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of the Second Sunday in Lent, March 13th, 2022, from Christchurch, Jerusalem. Psalm 27 and our Gospel passage today are tied together by the theme of fear, says Rev. David Pelegi. In this psalm, we discover that biblical worship, where we behold God's beauty, express joy, and offer sacrifice, is the best place to lose our fears and anxieties. The trust and obedience of Jesus, as he refuses to let anything stop him from doing God's will and walking the way of the cross, also enables us to live beyond our fears by faithful obedience to him, the one who conquered death itself. Let us open up our hearts and our ears as we hear the word of the Lord. Yeah, the first reading comes from Philippians chapter 3 and 4. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those, of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For, as I have often told you before, and now say again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, Seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my Savior. 
Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The gospel reading of our Lord Jesus of Nazareth comes from the book of Luke. And please stand. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform, perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that the prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, ask that um, you will indeed guide us and instruct us, teach us, Lord, when we ask that you'll empower us order that we may have a deeper understanding of what it means to follow you, to follow in the way of the cross. Lord, we pray that um, you will also enable us to examine ourselves so that we may remove those things which keep us from a deeper, more intentional discipleship. We ask these things again. For the sake of your Son, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. We're in the second Sunday of Lent, and uh, like to look at the gospel passage and then turn back to the psalm, hopefully back to the gospel passage. But we're in a very um, following Jesus to Jerusalem. Our gospel writer for this year, Luke devotes uh, 10 chapters to this journey, from chapter 9 to chapter 19. He includes um, material, uh, and especially parables, that uh, we don't find in the other three Gospels. And uh, here we have an interesting uh, incident of uh, the popularity of Jesus growing, uh, his reputation, you might say, is expanding. 
And uh, chapter 13 tells us that um, some Pharisees came to him and said, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And um, perhaps just a note before we go any further, because I think sometimes our um, teaching and preaching has uh, emphasized a certain anti-Judaism or even an anti-Semitism that has not only been detrimental to the uh, Jewish people, but has also been very detrimental to us because it has distorted our understanding of who God is and it has distorted what we, what Paul would call the gospel of God. So you may note in this passage that um, it's the Pharisees who warned Jesus. And uh, we're used to uh, hearing sermons uh, about the Pharisees, their hypocrisy, the opposition that uh, they give uh, Jesus. But uh, sometimes the, comp the picture is a little more complicated than that. And the Pharisees uh, are not all bad all the time. Actually, the group, the group in the New Testament that doesn't come off very well consistently would be the Sadducees, not the Pharisees. In any event, the Pharisees here are trying to, you might save the life of Jesus. They're telling him uh, to flee. They're warning him, uh, you might say, to, uh, to be careful. And um, this... Uh, you might say this positive interaction is also continued in the book of Acts, where twice the Pharisees come to the aid of the early church. And if that somehow doesn't fit our stereotype or a picture, a simple picture that we have of the New Testament context, then we need to go back and to, and to reevaluate. And of course, Jesus has a very, very... Um, fascinating response. His response is, go tell that fox. Go tell that fox. And here, uh, it's, here's always a very uh, good and simple, clear example yes, of the way that we should not approach the text. Because if you ask most of us what a fox is, we will reply from, uh, more likely than not, from a European context, and our understanding of a fox would be shaped by uh, the Brothers Grimm and their fairy tales. But I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, in the first century, Jews could not read about Little Red Riding Hood or didn't know anything about Little Red Riding Hood. And a fox, for a Jewish man or woman in the first century, was not someone who was sly and clever and tricky, but a fox was someone of no significance. Foxes were compared to lions. Lions were brave. Lions were ferocious and dangerous. Foxes are just the opposite. And if you're an American, the term scaredy cat Yes, might be uh, the best way to define a fox. And I think what's significant about this is not only that it 
jolts us a little bit into reading uh, the Gospels and reading our texts uh, as much as we possibly can from a first century perspective. But it also tells us something very important about Jesus and about his journey to Jerusalem and his journey to the cross. In Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He's the one who dies for the sins of the world. And uh, I don't think there's any, as much as some, some modern uh, theologians or commentators would like to get away from that idea. They think it's perhaps very primitive. It's not possible. Luke doesn't emphasize that so much. Luke emphasizes Jesus going to Jerusalem in part as this korban or as this sacrifice. Remember the words of Jesus at the Eucharist. This is my body. This is my blood. But Luke's emphasis is on uh, Jesus and his obedience to God and uh, his willingness to sacrifice his life because he understands this is what God requires. And that obedience and that sacrifice that serves for us um, serves for us as an example. And it always um, appeals to me, you might say, or it always strikes me that when Jesus, uh, especially in Luke's gospel, he's on the mountain of transfiguration. The cloud comes, Jesus, the, the physical body of Jesus is changed. A voice comes from the cloud as we mentioned several weeks ago, that voice was not only for Jesus, well, sorry, it was not only for the disciples, but it was for Jesus himself. It was to reassure Jesus that his understanding of, uh, that he must go to Jerusalem, that he, would, he will face death, is that somehow he had not misunderstood or misinterpreted you know, God's, you might say, will for his life. That God was not going to let him rot in the grave. And that voice, of course, for the disciples was also a voice reassuring them that uh, they needed to obey him or they need, or we needed, it's a voice not for those three, three disciples. It's also a voice for us. This is my son, this is my beloved son, and whom I'm well pleased, or whom I have chosen, listen to him. And so Jesus begins this journey towards Jerusalem. And he begins the journey, or he, he goes to Jerusalem, it tells us in Luke's gospel, with great courage and great determination, knowing what awaits him. Now, again, I don't think Jesus was, was Superman because he empties himself and he comes and he, he lives our life and he lives the life of a human being and therefore ultimately can empathize with us and help us in the time of our need, in the time of our struggle. And so what is it? And I think we w might want to look at in terms of what brings courage 
or what allows us to have courage in the most difficult and perplexing of times, or what will enable us to remain faithful, or what enables us to main, re, remain uh, resolute, especially in the day and age in which we live, I think it's very helpful to look at Psalm 27 for a moment. It's the Psalm appointed for the day, and it's a Psalm that um, it has its, you might say its relatives, Psalm 23, Psalm 15, Psalm 24, which we may refer to in a moment. Uh, all of these psalms are very similar. And I'm very hesitant to speak on the psalm because it is a psalm that so many millions of people have found inspiring and even life-changing, especially during the, uh, during the time of uh, difficulty or trauma or at the time of uh, hearing bad news. Yes, time of coming close to death. You know, it's not by accident that Psalm 27 is found in the um, funeral liturgies in, the, in an Anglican, Roman Catholic, and even Greek Orthodox tradition. Uh, and the same psalm becomes very important for Jewish people at the time of... Um, at the time of uh, the High Holy Days, where before Rosh Hashanah up into Yom Kippur, the psalm is chanted daily, uh, the da daily in the synagogue. So Psalm 27, uh, many people have found great comfort and strength from this psalm. But let's just look at it uh, <clears throat> uh, in any event. Uh, it's a psalm, it's, it's attributed to David, uh, the opening verses, the very famous verses, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold, of, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And I think the first thing to perhaps take away from the psalm is that there's a certain honesty here, right? It's not that the writer of the psalm is denying that he is afraid or denying that uh, he is fearful. He is. He is. And so you have uh, a, um, you might say, the psalmist presents us, uh, surely presents us with, uh, with a choice, gives us two alternatives. Yes, the alternative is one, trust, or two, to live in trust, or two, or two, to live in fear. But it does more than that, because what it does is it gives us a place to process those fears. And they, well, let's just look for a minute for, at the, what the psalmist fears, and then we'll look at the, where he takes those fears. Um, there, he says... When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, um, it goes on to say uh, that uh, 
do not turn me over to the desires of my foes, for false witnesses uh, rise against me. It says, the, or it says, though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. So here's a basic, despite the, the circumstances, here are many, uh, here are a number of basic fears, I think, that uh, certainly uh, transcend, you might say, the ages. And uh, every generation finds, um, well, every, per, all of us in every generation, we're fearful, are we not, of our physical safety? Yes, we all want security. It's, you might say it's the most basic of all fundamental human needs. Um, it could be physical security or emotional security. You might, uh, we might want to witness the emphasis on today's culture on quote unquote safety and having uh, a safe place. Um, most of the, most of the so-called demand for uh, emotional or ideological safety uh, is happening in places where we don't know war. We don't have a lot of want. I'm not sure that the people in, in Ukraine at the moment are craving the same kind of safety we are in the United States. Yes, there's also this fear of lying witnesses, which I think today translates into this fear of being misunderstood or this fear of being slandered. It's maybe this fear of even making, making a fool of ourselves or or making a mistake, though my mother and father reject me. Yes, the fears that we have about family and friends uh, the, and the fear of being rejected and not accepted perhaps is the second most, maybe the third most powerful fear that I can think of to be pushed to the edge of a society or a community uh, and not to be accepted uh, again, uh, is very, very painful, is it not? And it, uh, it is certainly a fear that um, uh, many of us certainly, certainly struggle with. And of course, the psalmist is concerned about not finding, not finding the presence of God. And the place, or you might say the question is, where... Where does the psalmist process these fears? Yes. Uh, so today, if you clicked on any website, you know, and it says what to do, and you ask the question with Google, what to do about fear? Uh, it might tell you to take some deep breaths or to go for a run, to change your diet and improve your immune system. Yes, or do yoga, or um, what else? See a therapist. Yeah, see a therapist. And all those things, maybe with the exception of the yoga, might be good. But uh, let's notice what, where the psalmist takes his fears. He says in verse 4, he says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The house of the Lord, right, is the place of worship. 
It's the place of God's presence. And he goes on to say, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. To seek him in his temple. So it's um, uh, seeking the Lord is, is an act of worship. And so for the psalmist, yes, it's uh, the worship of God and coming to a place, yes, of beholding or seeing his beauty. Seeing his beauty. I don't know how many of us have ever thought about or even considered the place of beauty or the importance of beauty in worship or the importance of beauty in our relationship with God. I think a lot of us think of God in very utilitarian terms, like what's in it for me or what can I get out of this? Or, yeah, God is something, but to come into the Lord's presence and to have a, you might say, the, the word in Hebrew is chaza, to, to see or to look or to somehow, it's deeper than appreciate, to appreciate God not only in an intellectual and rational way, which is part of it, because certainly God has to be, as Jesus told the woman uh, in Samaria, God has to be worshipped in truth. And if we're not careful, we can worship the wrong God or have the wrong understanding of God. But also it's beholding his beauty is something experiential, right? That's, the, that's how the Hebrew understands it, right? So to see, to appreciate, to absorb something of who God is. And so when the psalmist has this encounter with a living God in a place or a context of worship, surely all his fears, all our fears become quite small and even insignificant. And surely things that can be put aside and overcome. Goes on to tell us what kind of worship is, uh, you might say, what kind of worship is here or what kind of worship he uh, engages in. It says... Um, For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling place. He will hide me in the shelter of a sacred tent. This takes us back, by the way, to the beginning, right? The Lord is my light and my salvation, right? The Lord is my stronghold. So God, first of all, is light, right? And uh, light is opposed to either confusion or darkness, uh, which fear and anxiety find uh, surely grow, do they not, or flourish in uh, fear and darkness? And secondly, the Lord is a stronghold. So the house of the Lord, the place of worship, God's presence uh, becomes a stronghold. God keeps, God keeps the worshiper 
safe uh, and at his sacred tent, which is another way of talking about the temple or the place of worship, he says the following. He says, um, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. I will sacrifice with, house, with shouts of joy. So what does worship involve? So sometimes we understand worship to be, I'm coming to a service and I'm going to participate a little bit. Or in some traditions, I'm going to let the preacher and the musicians entertain me. Or I'm going to raise my hands and sing. But here worship has, uh, uh, I think there are two things worth noting. One, in response to who God is, in response to who God is, we bring sacrifices. Yes, that's the ancient Israelite understanding. That's the model of the temple, which the principles of the temple are still, you might say, run throughout the teaching of the New Testament. We may not need a temple, but the way that God revealed himself in the temple, yes, that's still very relevant for us. And the word for sacrifice in Hebrew is korban. Korban, from the word korban, or you might say from, from the word, the word korban comes from the word karov, to be close. The way that we get close to God, yes, is through sacrifice. In ancient Israel, the people brought something valuable, something costly, uh, something that was whole and perfect and complete. Yes, and the New Testament understanding, the sacrifice that we give is we give our lives. Yes, we respond, yes, in a way by, through obedience or through trust, by following Jesus and being a disciple. Doesn't mean we're earning it. I always make this distinction because some people think, Oh, well, what happens to grace? Yes, grace, um, you might say, um, what does Dallas Willard say? Um, thank you. Thank you. Grace is not opposed to effort, or grace is not opposed to responding in the proper way. We don't deserve what God has given us, but still there has to be a response. We don't, we don't deserve all of God's goodness. We don't deserve his mercy. But still there is a response. And that response often takes place in us giving something. Yes, It doesn't say we're trying to pay you back. It's saying I acknowledge what you've given me. And by giving you something back, I want to enter into a relationship with you. And secondly, it's with shouts of joy. It's with shouts of joy that worship includes joy. And that joy, is it not, is a significant, significant part of gratitude, right? What it means to be grateful and to be thankful in its most, in its purest definition, or you might say in its highest form, the highest form of thanksgiving is to be joyful. 
It's to be, it's to be joyful because of what God has done for us. And for, for those of us who have such fear and anxiety about the future, yes, practicing gratitude and joy or rehearsing and going over, even on a daily basis, what the Lord has done for us, yes, might be something significant and important. But before we leave this, I'd like to add just two more things. Because there is no worship without a proper response, without a sacrifice, and there's no maintaining the presence of the Lord. There's no living in the shelter of the Most High without holiness. And the, this psalm doesn't, make, doesn't have that emphasis, but others certainly do. And uh, you may, some of us may be familiar with Psalm 15. It says, who may dwell in your sacred tent and who may live on your holy mountain? Those who can only sing, those who can pray, those who understand the beauty of holiness. There are lots of people or lots of religiosity, yes, in different traditions or different streams of Christianity. Yes, the worship folks are all about exuberant worship and singing to the Lord and praising the Lord. And we have other traditions that love the form. They understand that holiness should be beautiful. And so the ritual and the altar and all of these things uh, become very important. And they are. But without the form without content, form without content is is nothing, or it's actually totally useless. So here the psalmist says, if you want to be in God's presence, yes, he goes on to say, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from the heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, who casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. So, Psalm 24, which we, many of us know from a, our morning liturgy. Yes. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? Those who have the ritual correct or proper ritual. Well, that was important. Those who are joyful and know how to sing before the Lord. Also important. Those who bring the sacrifice, the right kind of sacrifice. Also important. But here, it reminds us again, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who will seek your face, God of Jacob. And seeking your face again 
is a Hebrew term which refers to worship, right? The right kind of worship or the proper understanding of worship, the proper understanding of finding refuge, of finding refuge, um, finding blessing, yes, finding a place where our fears, you might say, our anxieties, our worries are overcome is in the presence of the Lord. But we can never separate, can never separate worship from ethics. Or in, if we want to think about the New Testament, worship from discipleship. It is surely the teaching of the Hebrew Bible. It is surely the he- teaching of Jesus. Ultimately, our, the way that we relate to God or our relationship with God will ultimately depend on the way that we relate to others, yes, connect with others. By the way, this makes the God of Israel radically different then and now to all the other gods and idols of our age because there are many gods, so-called gods out there, or many idols, or many spirits, and many of these have power, not power that necessarily comes from God. Many of them, um, <clears throat> many of them demand some form of worship, but none of them demand goodness. None of them demand personal or ethical holiness. That's what makes the God of that's what makes the God of Israel and the God of the Bible radically different. So yes. Place we bring our fears is into the presence of the Lord. We need to understand that to maintain that presence or to stay in that presence, it will require holiness. And by the way, holiness is energizing, holiness is power, holiness enables us as individuals, and as a community to overcome the fruit of fear. One of the biggest fruits, one of the biggest results of being fearful is passivity. I'm going to do nothing. Somehow I'm going to wait. But, oh, but you might say, but the psalm says, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. But the verse, two verses before, the psalmist says, teach me. Yes, teach me. The word for teach is the word, the word that uh, we use for Torah. Guide me, direct me, instruct me. Yes, so that I can walk along the path in the, in the right way. Not that I sit and sit and sit fearfully, not, not knowing what to do or not uh, worried about making the wrong decision. Yes. And finally, let's go back to our gospel for a minute. Can we not? Jesus walking in the way of the cross. A man who has a sense of direction. A man who has to face many of the fears listed in Psalm 27. Fear of rejection. 
misunderstanding by his family, opposition from his enemies, especially, you know, those who control the temple, not necessarily only Pharisees, some Pharisees. And as Jesus walks the way of the cross, yes, I think that I hope that from him we will uh, take an example and hear his words, come and follow me, that in a time of uncertainty or a time or at times when we have to face our greatest fears. And I think the if it didn't mention it yet, but the greatest fear that uh, the greatest and most fundamental fear is not just the fear of being rejected or the fear of insecurity or the fear of being misunderstood, but it's the fear of death. And it's the fear that my life and your life might be meaningless. But Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he walks the way of the cross and he invites us to walk that same way as him. Yes, we need to walk with courage and we, not, we need to not be paralyzed by fear. And it's not that we deny our fear or it's not that we somehow pretend we don't have fears, but in following Jesus, there's a way and a life that is beyond our fears. Yes, that we can see, yes, we can see the ultimate end. Yes, which for Jesus, after being tested, and by the way, I do think sometimes it's in our fears and in our, our anxieties that the Lord will does test us in order to expose who we are and then to challenge us, yes, to challenge us to change or to prompt us to be willing to change. It's as we indeed follow the Lord and follow the example of Jesus that I hope that all of us come to realize yes, that, um, that f f fear of death is, uh, or that death itself has been conquered. And we ourselves don't need to, to live uh, under, you might say, the influence of the devil, as it tells us in the book of Hebrews, but instead to have uh, courage to live in a, in a sacrificial way, know, knowing, yes, as Jesus knew, that the cross and the crucifixion is not our end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we ask for courage. We pray that uh, we will behold you in a place of worship. We pray that uh, we will take courage and be energized by holiness. But most of all, Lord, we pray that uh, we, will be, we will take courage uh, by following Jesus on, as he walks to Jerusalem. Lord, as he suffers and dies and rises again, 
Lord, we ask that uh, we will give our lives to him in a sacrificial way, knowing that he will give them back to us. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.